This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And we have a new government, but the ministers responsible for Home Affairs and Immigration remain the same. Peter Dutton for Home Affairs and David Coleman is Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs. So what does this mean for those people living on Manus Island and Nauru and more generally for Australia's refugee policy and advocacy in this area? David Mann has no doubt thought about all of these things. He's Executive Director at Refugee Legal and it's always good to have you in at Triple R. Thanks for coming in. It's good to be with you. And uh, so we have the status quo in home affairs and immigration and I suppose I'd be interested in uh, your views on on that but also how those two ministers have worked together in recent months and what that that sort of hails for the the future in this area. Yeah well look uh, there was a lot of hope of change. I think that's uh, there was a lot of hope within um, I think I'd start actually with the you know the, the so many people that have been so severely affected by the policies in recent years in fact, for, for many years, you know, people seeking asylum, people are refugees, both here and offshore and Manus and Nauru, there was just a really deep sense of hope for change. Um, and really, that at, at its heart, change from policies that have deliberately harmed people that have been deliberately cruel for years, uh, and uh, to a shift from that to a more humane policy, which uh, which actually puts the you know, the rights and, and interests and the well-being of people at, at the forefront, uh, which it hasn't done, as we know, through deterrence policy and a whole range of factors related to it, we've seen conscious and calculated cruelty on a mass scale, both here and offshore, and there was hope for change, and um, and uh, with, with the change of government, that hasn't happened. And so really the, the, the first question I, I think that we have to ask is what, what is what is the plight, what is the plight of people, you know, caught up ensnared in this, in this severe harm here and offshore? And um, and that that is actually very uncertain. I think that the, the key point is it's uncertain. So the best that we can do at the moment, and we've already, you know, the, the incredible team at Refugee Legal, you know, amazing group of people. And um, we got together last week, as you'd imagine, and regrouped, steeled ourselves and uh, and had a look. And that, that was the first question, you know, what, what that, that's the thing that is most high in our minds is we had a barrage of calls from people on Monday morning. In fact, I was starting to get them with others on, on Saturday night from people affected people that were helping who were desperate, uh, despairing, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't think we can, f- you know, I don't want to f- shirk this. I mean, they were, you know, I had, you know, a text message that will never leave me really on Saturday night from someone that we've helped for years that I know very well, a man who has, you know, been recognised as a refugee, um, separated from his family for now more than 10 years. He's got a TPV. The best he's looking down the barrel at the moment under this policy is perpetual TPVs, lifelong limbo in Australia. Temporary perfect protection, protection visa. visa. Yeah, and, uh, and cut off from his wife and child. I mean, his daughter... Had, for 10 years, the, the, the formative years of her life, uh, she's been stuck in danger, uh, which he fled from. So, and, he, and he sent a message saying, I have no hope anymore. Is this know, because and, of the election? Yeah. The yeah. election has had this response. Yeah. Re- and reaction. Yeah. That's right. And so I think that, that that for us is the is the deepest issue. Um, and then the next question is, what do we do about it? What's likely at the moment? And I think the, the state of play is that there are certain sort of broad, I think, things that we can predict in terms of likelihood. That is the foundations of the policy, uh, you know, being uh, you know, directed at deterrence. Um, that is, you know, um, yeah, that the sort of political war cry of stop the boats. I think um, that is... But either, either, 
whoever got government, I think that turning back boats was still going to be the policy. Well, t- what I was going to yeah. say, because, I mean, there was hope for change, but we didn't really see refugee and asylum seeker issues figure prominently in the campaign, presumably no. because they were both essentially signed up, the major parties I'm talking about, signed up to a very similar policy platform. That's right. I think there are a number of factors. I think that's certainly, uh, I think Labor was seeking to neutralise the issue and uh, by, by saying, look, we're in lockstep with you over the border protection. But I think that more broadly speaking, I think there were um, likely to be some fundamental changes um, if Labor had got government. We didn't know the full shape, but I think one of them, which I think is often missed, and I actually think rightly the focus has been on Manus and Nauru, absolutely, and we've been putting a huge amount of work into that issue ourselves together with a coalition of NGOs, um, you know, working day and night, you know, seven days a week on, on that issue to try and, you know, basically help people to get evacuated. But what's probably been missed quite a bit, I think, is the plight of the 31,000 people uh, who came by boat and weren't sent there who are stuck in limbo in Australia mm. in various forms of limbo, either still going through the process after years of, of delay on their cases or uh, having been granted protection but only temporary and so stuck in that cycle of uncertainty. And, it's uncer- and, and the ability yeah. to work and so forth is very, very difficult. That's right. Well, well the, we, but, but in, in our community at the moment, just around the corner, you know, up the road, there are people who have been stripped of basic supports, income support and housing supports while they're going through the process. And um, and so this is a real crisis too. And um, and it's a, it's a, now Labor had said that they would get rid of that that policy and they'd effectively, in essence, convert people on temporary protection visas to permanent visas, which many years ago used to be the policy. Mm. If you're a refugee, you get permanency. So you can you know, get on with um, rebuilding your life, be able to contribute and participate fully in the life of the community. It, it, it's best for everyone, not only refugees, but for everyone in our community, um, the welcome and embrace. That was likely to be a challenge. Well, they'd committed to that change and some others. I think what we're looking at, though, now is a situation where there are a range of policies that the government have pursued with um, with fairly, um, fair, with full force. And uh, the question will be, do they continue? You know, do what do they do about it, the offshore processing situation, which is not really offshore processing, it's actually just, you know, offshore incarceration, really, um, in Nauru and Manus. What do they do about these people going through the TPV process and having to reapply? I mean, you know, which has got to be one of the the, the worst public policies that we have seen in decades. It's so counterproductive and, you know, it second wave of suffering it imposes, re-traumatisation of people who are likely to never be able to go back. How long has it been in place? Was that, was that a policy put in place under... Um under Dutton or was it under Morrison when he was Immigration Minister? Or It's actually had two incarnations actually, the TPV policy, a bit like offshore processing I guess, um, or the Nauru and Manus situation. It was introduced in 1999, um, 20 October 1999, there you go. <laughs> Um, and uh, it was it was introduced. It was one of those policies that many say who are involved in it. It was introduced by the then you know the, the Liberal government, um, the Howard government, and it was one of those policies. You know the, the old saying: "There's nothing so permanent as a temporary change," and uh, it just stuck. It was brought in as one of those temporary changes, uh, and it stuck, and it, and it endured until uh, the Rudd government. Uh, were elected, they abolished temporary protection visas, and then they were reintroduced when uh, under the Abbott government when Morrison was minister. 
um, and uh, there were many battles that uh, ensued. We actually took them out of the High Court. We had some wins in that, but then they eventually got the got it through. They actually got it through with um, Clive Palmer's support, actually. Um, just a, a little All these familiar notes. names. Right. All these familiar names. Last in the past, isn't it? Yeah, so they reintroduced a policy which um, I can assure you has never been, there's never been one skerrick of evidence that it deters. So even if that was your benchmark, which, um, yeah, even if that was that, that was, uh, you sort of argued that was necessary, it doesn't deter people. Um, uh, but what it does do is leave people in a twilight world in our community experiencing, you know, re- being re-traumatised, you know, and I think that when actually what they've done is had the courage to flee violence and persecution to get here, to try and uh, get mm. to safety and rebuild their lives and to contribute, participate, etc. I remember a time when there was a fairly strong coordinated campaign against TPVs, probably in that in the Howard years, and then in the aftermath once uh, once Abbott reintroduced them. But that seems to have kind of gone away now, at least at the level of um, you know politics in this country. That the opposition hasn't really gone hard on removing TPVs, even though, uh, as you say, that was part of their policy platform taken to the election. Yeah. Look, there, there was one. I, I've only picked up a couple of references here and there. I think there was one in the, one of those so-called debates mm. uh, between Morrison and Shorten, uh, and um, you know, um, extraordinary comment by, um, by by Morrison that uh, that in a bol- if if one was to abolish TPVs, that sort of one of the bricks in the edifice would um, would would come away, and there'd be a sort of a collapse of deterrence policy and border protection, and we'd sort of you know he didn't say this, but the sort of he, he suggested that it was a critical factor in being able to stop boats and, um, and you know, of course, without producing evidence because there is none. But it's that sort of group think that every single, you know, brick... In, in you know is essential in the policy all of these deterrent measures and mm. um, and so I think that that that's one of the central issues um, but there are many others I mean the way in which they they, they have fourteen hundred percent increase in in cancellation or refusal of visas on so-called character grounds this, and for many people who have been granted protection who end up therefore after doing their time for for offences committed under the criminal justice system are then transferred immediately to indefinite detention so it's a double punishment I mean that's been a huge escalation in the use of that power expansion of the power and the use of it which has left um, you know quite a number of people many of whom are from refugee backgrounds unable to return and stuck for years in indefinite detention so that's another issue um, and uh, you know uh, family reunion I mean the policy um, deliberately now effectively puts severe prohibitions, potentially life pro- lifelong prohibitions on family reunion for people that came by boat because they came by boat. You know, there are all of these issues um, and many more that um, at the moment, as it stands, remain policies. But, the, but, but, you know, what we know about the area, and I can tell you from working in it for many years, is there's one certainty, and that is uncertainty. Yeah. You know, change, there is so much change. And so many of these policies, just a reflection on this too, so many of these policies, TPV policies particularly, the Nauru and Manus uh, policies, they are very much tied to electoral cycles. Well, they are. And I wonder, I mean, we, we saw Dr Karen Phelps lose her seat, um, and she just had that few months really uh, as a member for Wentworth and... And she was really key to getting the Medivac laws passed in the minority government. And now the Morrison government is in majority. Uh, what's likely to happen with these Medivac laws talking about change being um, the constant here? Yeah, well, look, the first thing is that there are around a thousand people in Narua Manus collectively uh, who are um, suffering deeply. 
I mean, that's the, that's the reality. Um, and um, after six years of offshore detention, it's not offshore processing, it's offshore detention, really. Um, there has been an unprecedented medical crisis on Manus and Nauru. There are men and women um, who've been detained by the Australian government, as we know, um, and are experiencing a wide range of severe health conditions ranging from people who are acutely suicidal um, to people with serious heart conditions that can't be treated um, and, uh, and and but since and, and and you know since the the election um, there have been um, uh, multiple um, suicide attempts on Manus uh, and uh, the situation is absolutely dire I mean it went from a situation of dire and is descending um, lives are at risk um, and uh, Look, one of the one of the I think one of the things that I wanted to explain is that we haven't been able to talk about uh, yet is that um, since the Medivac bill became law, um, we have there's a, a small coalition of key um, non-government organisations, NGOs, us, uh, and a number of others, Human Rights Law Centre, um, Refugee Council, ASRC. There's a number of us that have come together to do what we can to ensure that people are able to um, you know, exercise their rights under these under this legislation to be able to um, to, to effectively be able to um, request evacuation on the basis of, of medical expertise, medical expert reports and um, so that in a way, and this is the whole point of the Medivac legislation, that, that medical experts make the call on medical need and um, so we've been working literally around the clock with doctors, very medically driven this, it's very, you know, really we're, we're, it's an incredible coalition, um, so the Medical Emergency Response Group, MERG, I think the acronym is, but we have been together um, essentially uh, responding to requests from people on and Nauru for evacuation and it's very medically driven in the sense of doctors, we're working very closely with doctors to ensure that people can um, have proper assessments of their needs, reports prepared expert reports and then that they can be lodged with the government and since February um, that more than 40 people have been transferred from offshore detention uh, on Manus and Nauru for urgent medical treatment and um, that, that includes people who've successfully applied through the Medivac process and also the government um, have brought off critically ill people um, uh, on the back of this advocacy, this, this work and so people are coming off, um, being brought off. What, what happens to them once they, they come to, to the mainland and, and receive medical care? I mean, are they returned or are they then, you know, transferred to a facility in, you know, in Melbourne, in Sydney? Yeah, at the moment, that's a good question. We Look, at the, as it stands, it's the latter, that they're getting, the, they're being provided with the treatment um, that, uh, you know, that, that, that's the focus, is, is getting them the treatment they need. And, um, and in many cases, the situations that we've been working on acting for people, they have been really severe I mean um, you know really severe physical psychiatric um, issues um, and so they're getting that medical treatment at the moment their future remains very uncertain and you know it's one of one of the critical issues here is is providing some certainty for people and protection for the future um, that remains unresolved at the moment as it stands um, so this, this is one of the various areas where we're looking at what what next mm. yeah and David Mann's with us he's exec director at refugee legal and we don't have much time left with you David but I mean what what is happening now with um with resettlement of people on Manus and Nauru and also I I suppose within Australia for somewhere where they can set up a a permanent life yeah well look um 
You know, I just come back to the Medivac legislation itself, which is related to your question. And th this ultimately, um, you know, the, the legislation does give, um, you know, a lifeline to access doctors and get medical treatment. It is bringing people off and it needs many more people need to be brought off urgently, urgently. But it does none of this diminishes the responsibility of the Australian government, including on, on evacuations of so many people critically ill, um, but also um, the basic fundamental duty to care for these people beyond that. And, um, and so at, as it stands at the moment, without change, um, without change, the only options at the moment are for evacuation to Australia, um, then this, the person, you know, and there's, there's over 900 people, you know, um, now, you know, it's pushing to 1,000 people who've been brought back in that situation, or um, to the US, resettlement to the US. They're the two op the main options at the moment that remain. Of course, the government has refused to take up New Zealand's offer for, uh, for multiple years, New Zealand's offer, standing offer to take some people, 150 per year. So as it stands, the situation remains really uncertain. Resettlement to the US or evacuation here to an uncertain situation uh, where there has been no confirmation of what the future holds for these people. And, uh, and so there is a, an area for major policy shift, major policy, a major and urgent policy rethink. And obviously the coalition has the numbers in the, the majority in the House of Representatives currently, but do you see much hope or, or potential for kind of a, an expression of solidarity between the Labor Party, the Greens and, and independents? We have some new independents now elected, Helen Haynes in Indi um, and Zali Stegall, of course, in Warringah. I mean, do you think that that kind of group of, of parties and, and independents could come together to advocate for some kind of change on, on this issue? Oh, why not? I mean, I, I absolutely possible. And I think that that's one of the various areas where, um, despite, um, you know, the darkness, despite the dark path, uh, you know, which, which our nation has gone down, um, there is also real opportunity here for exactly in the way that you, you're talking about, and perhaps others. I mean, I wouldn't discount the possibility. You've certainly got the Centre Alliance have actually been very good. They were very good on the Medivac legislation. Mm. You know, Jackie Lambie has been good on refugees. You know, I don't discount the possibility of people looking at the human face of this and the consequences for the people and for our nation. I mean, you know, this is, this is actually about us too. This is about who we are and whether we are really um, prepared to, to continue on like this as a nation. So I think there's every possibility. And I also think too, can I say on change, um, that I think there are real openings for change generally. I don't think that the, the current situation can remain. I don't think it can go on like this. Um, and there are various ways of coming at it. But one that I think is from, from history, if, and history is one of our best guides, um, and that is that change can also happen when policies turn in on themselves, when they no longer, um, you know, they run out of steam and then they just look like they actually are, and that is mean, um, harmful, um, unconscionable and impractical, you know, and the rest. And I could keep going on. I mean, cruel is one of those. But, but, but I, I think that sometimes change can come through that as well as the dysfunction of these policies. And uh, and so I, I, I actually think that you know. But ultimately, I think that uh, that the greatest um, prospect of changing from inhumanity to humanity is actually our own humanity. Mm. I agree with you there, David Mann, Exec Director at Refugee Legal. Thanks for coming into Triple R and we'll speak again very soon. It
And you might have caught yesterday or maybe this morning the news uh, that Scott Morrison has named women in key positions in his cabinet and outer ministry, including as ministers for defence, foreign affairs and women, agriculture, environment, families and social services. But is this really a big enough step forward for female representation in our parliament? Mary Crooks is Exec Director of Victoria Women's Trust and it's always good to have you in at Triple R, Mary. And uh, I mean, we heard from uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison before the election and I quote, we want to see women rise, but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse. And I don't know um, whether we can put that together with, with the ministry, but um, how do you see things going forward? Yeah, he, he actually said <clears throat> it was an International Women's Day address where part of that speech you've just quoted, he said, uh, yes, we want to see women rise, but not at the expense of men. So we might come back to that later. But before we talk about this, I just caught the end of your interview with David Mann, uh, and I would just really seriously urge all of your listeners to to go and check out David's speech, uh, the recording of it that he gave to the Communities in Control conference. I happened to hear it when I was working at home last Thursday, and it's a single act of community leadership. It's it's a brilliant speech uh, around um, looking back at this country from 2030 uh, around the treatment of refugees in the form of a national apology and I would really urge people to go and give it all their time and listen to it. Well, we've just shared it on our um, Grapevine Triple R Facebook page if you um, want to go there and find it. We've got the um, link to the YouTube or the Communities in Control YouTube. You can just Google it with David Mann's name and it does pop up. So Fantastic. we're all going to be watching it. We, we have to look at ways of nourishing our, the values um, that bind us uh, the people who press for for social justice and uh, gender equality and so on. Uh, look, I, I thought it might be useful. I mean, I, I heard this morning, even on the ABC, uh, them saying, you know, there's a record number of women. And I just rolled my eyes, um, frankly, at the number of record number. I mean, we're starting from an incredibly low base. Uh, it's still about a third um, of... I think it's seven of 22. It, it's seven of 22. By yeah. my math, that's a third... Uh, and 11 in the outer ministry, that's about a quarter. Uh, but I think, I, I think we have to also be careful not simply to focus on the raw numbers like that. So I, I thought coming here this morning it was probably important to go back and take a long view about this. Um, so if I can just do that for over a couple of minutes. I've been, we've been doing a lot of work on this at the Trust and you know, in 118 years of federal government, uh, over, you know, close to five generations now, um, we have scarcely had any women feature up until the last decade or so. We've had, it's been, you know, here and there um, from 1943, but 118 years with scarcely women featuring, and not just in the parliament, but we've scarcely had women featuring as ministers. Uh, we've, we've not had any women ministers of Treasury and so on. And we haven't had many people, many women actually, even heading up uh, heads of departments. So what that suggests to me is that we've had for 118 years um, uh, pretty much a monocultural, dominant, white, Anglo-Celtic male system of governing. Now, that's the reality statistically and demographically. There are scarcely any uh, ethnic... There's scarcely any ethnic diversity in that 118 years. But apart from 118 years or close to five generations, 
Labor has only governed for about 38 of those years. So apart from having a dominant hegemonic force of white Anglo-Celtic men, we've also been dominated by white Anglo-Celtic men who are not gender equality um, advocates by and large. And then when you look at the composition of our national parliament over that time, we've seen over the last 30 years, for instance, a great rise in political operatives going into parliament. So they've either been chief of staff or um, working in an electorate of an MP. We see parliament dominated by financiers and bankers. There's hardly any people from trades or vocations. There's hardly any people from the NGO sector at all. Uh, and what this goes to is the prism through which our national parliament and our legislative program is developed. It's not through the prism of men and women, for example, who are working at the coalface. It's not through the prism of women who might have been community nurses or men who have been in the um, who might have been electricians for thirty years. So the the gene pool the gene pool in terms of understanding of community and the needs of community and gender equality, for instance, is actually quite limited. Um, when I look at it, the, the, there's only been really one pe period of national government nationally where there has been a huge fillip to the rights of women, and that was the Whitlam era. And it was in that period that we saw uh, you know, sex discrimination outlawed. We saw the principle of equal pay enshrined, and so on. Um, but there, but since then we've stalled, and we're now slipping back through global rankings, and we're somewhere around the mid 30s. So we're slipping behind many, many other nations in terms of some basic milestone indicators around gender equality. The, we took part at the Victorian Women's Trust. We took part in a national consultation. Uh, 20 months or so ago that was led by Tanya Plibersek. So this was this was exciting uh, and it was new to actually have the opportunity of women and women's groups around the country to have a say about what we thought were the big issues for women's, women's status, economic security and safety. And we were thrilled to see that the submission we put in, we could tick all the boxes around women in super, safety, safe housing for women, uh, pay equity, uh, and so on. So, yeah, look, it's very galling to see the sort of second time that there might have been some impetus from a federal government that that's gone now, I think. Um, so, coming back now to the Prime Minister's speech to the, um, uh, to the, I think it was the Chamber of the Council of Minerals on International Women's Day. So he says, yes, we want to see women on the rise, but not at the expense of men. I mean, with all due respect, it's a pretty shallow construction of gender equality because the fundamental premise of gender equality is not only that it produces benefits for society as a, as a whole, but it's premised on sharing of power and it's premised on more respectful relations between genders and it's premised on men having to actually relinquish their stranglehold on being dominant, on being the controlling outfit. So. Gender equality can only come about because men have actually had to forego a lot of rights and privileges, and I use the rights and privileges in an excessive sense, not a human rights framework. So I think we're in for a, a fairly um, pockmarked, a fairly uninspiring agenda. I mean, there is no agenda at the current government. There's a home buyers scheme 
for 10,000 people and tax cuts that might or might not start. There's no agenda. I don't think we can expect to see a lot of proactive uh, structural policies and changes that might go to the heart of the issues that hold women back in this country. Do you think it's expectations that meant that um, news reports and, you know, I've heard them all about, um, you know, that we've got a record record number of uh, women in Cabinet and I suppose people, it's not so long ago that uh, Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, had one woman in the Cabinet and was the Minister for Women yeah. and whether people's expectations are quite low for particularly the coalition side of of the house so that we look at seven of 22 some people and go well it's better than it was oh, look, but it's no, certainly not there, good there, enough there's no doubt yeah. but what i'm saying and you know and and let's um uh you know let's take all the the good bits out of it i mean having tony abbott out of the parliament is a blessing full stop because he has actually been one of the most divisive figures not just on the climate issue but he's been an incredibly divisive person and a destructive opposition leader so good luck uh, to his you know career whether it's in the vatican or whatever but um and you're right that we should be saying well seven out of 22 is better than three out of 22 i guess what i'm trying to say though is that it's it is terrific to have women occupying um and, and building a critical mass uh, and that's what's happened on the Labor side. They've built a critical mass of women who rolled up their sleeves and did a lot of really good policy work. But the program, and, and this is where Labor needs to look at their own ability to have conducted that campaign uh, without any of the same dexterity of the Conservatives, because the policies for women that they took, that Shorten took to the electorate, were not really under... They were not known by women. I've just been checking over the weeks and months, and, you know, women did not know, for example, that there was a policy to remove the $450 cap on superannuation that prevents women in low-income circumstances from even entering the superannuation scheme. I think Tanya Plibersek's policy on, on um, supporting public hospitals to have reproductive services for women, I, I would venture that most Australian women did not know that that was a policy that they were taking. So they have to look, I think, hard at... They had, they had actually a raft of very impressive policies. But they, it's not enough, obviously. And so we will go backwards, I think, in the next three years, which points to, just as David Mann uh, and, and his outfit plays a really important role in being a voice for refugees and trying to f forge on with community pressure around humanitarian agendas. It points to agencies like ours, the Victorian Women's Trust and others, we have to actually ramp up our efforts just that bit further um, because we can't afford to keep slipping back in mm -hmm. this way. Speaking with Mary Crooks, Executive Director at the Victorian Women's Trust, all about gender representation and, and gender equity in, in the new parliament. And I guess um, looking ahead to um, the L Labor Party in opposition, it's looking like it may be Anthony Albanese and, um, and Richard Miles as, as the leader and deputy leader, potentially Penny Wong and Christina Keneally in the Senate. I mean, is it significant that we're going into another period of opposition or a period of opposition with two male leaders on, on the one side and uh, the Prime Minister and Deputy Opposition? position as two men on the other? Look, you know, I think probably symbolically that's a problem uh, because we've, be, we've been used to in the last decade, despite what happened to her, but we've seen super, super impressive women like Julia Gillard. They're in a leadership position and super impressive women like Tanya Plibersek. But I, I, I think I saw Claire O'Neill on Insiders yesterday morning and I, I think she's right that we have to remember that, that the... the 
the real issue about equal representation is not at the end of the day the numbers of women and men it's actually the changes that come out of government that make a significant material difference to the status of women now you know on the one hand for example at the moment we've got increasing numbers of older women descending into poverty and homelessness thanks very much for all the work you've done as unpaid laborers um, but we've got that happening and yet there was no policy not yet coming out of the federal government around economic security for women. So equal representation is clearly important numerically, but the acid test is whether the status of women is given a genuine fillip through the governance that we have installed. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you mentioned already that there was a potential for a, a, a different kind of a superannuation policy and also targets on boards, 50% targets on board is something the coalition has, but there's no time frame for that. There's no pay gap policy uh, with the current government. Uh, the childcare activity tests are still there where if you're not working or in study then you can't access um, subsidies for those services or um, support for those services and I think uh, you know there's been some announcements around domestic and family violence but nowhere near as much as what the sector is calling for so we've got a lot of work to do and they're just some of the areas that that there needs to be work done I mean what what happens now Mary do you well think? again I think well I mean you have to rely on some people within the government itself uh, being attuned to these issues of of economic security and uh, fairness you have to make sure that the Labor Party itself in opposition doesn't lose an appetite uh, for for being ambitious on these questions uh, but I think it also comes back we've got to we have to rely on our civil society to try and build the momentum and to keep um, pushing for interventions and to keep coming up with ideas and to hold people to account so that's that's the same um, as before one of the one of the big policy issues that got lost with labor was their um, commitment to addressing the the pay inequity across the feminised childcare um, industry. And that's a real shame that that in impetus has gone for probably three years because, you know, the, the bitter irony, hooking back to my opening stuff about, you know, uh, our parliaments being dominated by white Anglo-Celtic men of usually of means, higher educated uh, and, you know, substantially well off in comparison with the rest of the population, is that these are the same men um, ruling over so many decades who are happy to have their children looked after and pay them the lowest rates of pay in the economy. So they're happy to put their precious assets that children into a sector which is awfully um, poorly paid for the kind of social and economic value of that task. So life is full of ironies. That's one we'll just have to live with for a little moment more. Mm. And you've mentioned the, the role played by the community sector and organis organisations such as Refugee Legal and, of course, Victoria Women's Trust in, in this space. What does the, the Victorian Women's Trust have kind of on the agenda? What are you working on currently? Well, we are, we are actually working on this issue of equal representation, but not just about how you get the numbers. Uh, but, but it's interesting, and our view is that it's not enough, actually, for, the, for our parliaments to be gender equal. They're not diverse enough, full stop. So there's not enough representation of the kind of Australia we are in terms of our ethnic makeup. Uh, so, you know, I would like 
as much to see uh, even more men enter our parliament who are actually from very very different ethnic backgrounds from the cultural the cultural sort of monopoly that we that we have witnessed for so many generations so we're working on equal representation we're doing a lot of work around economic security uh, and we're doing a lot of work around violence the issue of this this dreadful persistent and arguably even you know we might be going backwards on the issue of disrespect and violence towards women and girls and I understand you um, are about to launch a, a book and about bloody time you put this book out. <laughs> yes, um, uh, next week, in fact, uh, at Church for All Nations. We've been working on this for some years and, you know, some people might, might you know, raise their eyebrow and think, well, why, why would you do that? This is a book about menstruation and menopause uh, and the reason it's called About Bloody Time uh, is that its strapline is the menstrual revolution we have to have. And this book, there's stuff written about menstruation, sure, but this is a book that I think is unprecedented. It goes to the menstrual taboo that is writ large in our culture, not just women of my generation, but but younger women in their late teenage late teenagers uh, period now and in their twenties that that we we suffer from this oppressive, culturally oppressive menstrual taboo uh, that that really has us dis disconnected with our bodies uh, and looking after ourselves enough, but also not being supported uh, just for who we are and what's going on in our bodies. So this About Bloody Time, which has been written by Karen Pickering and Jane Bennett, uh, and uh, it's actually coming in hard copy to the Trust today, so we're very excited. Sounds really interesting. And I, I must say the first time I ever thought about taboos around menstruation was reading Janet frame way back then probably in my teen years and it hadn't occurred to me I went yeah there's there's shame here well and and but it was I mean that was a bit set you know decades earlier than what when I was living but that was when it first um, clicked in my mind that there was something there that I was living with and, and accepting but not you know not challenging well so it's it's interesting because there's a little bit of an analogy going with you know the, the kind of shame and embarrassment and taboo that surrounds menstruation over generations over many 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 generations uh, women just we absorb it um, we're socialized around it men are socialized around it and we come to see that that's the the norm that's the way things are. And that's precisely what's also happening with our political culture, that we assume that it's the norm to have someone like a Scott Morrison as Prime Minister and to have men occupying all of the key ministerial things of Treasury. And we also assume uh, a belligerence and an adversarial way of doing politics because it's, it's conveyed to us subliminally, this is how you do politics. Well, you see, it doesn't have to be that way. You can actually, these are, these are masculine institutions that we have been raised on uh, and like all things that are man-made, they can actually be unmade and they can be remade. Well, um, Mary Crooks, it's been a while since we've had you on the program, won't be so long next time. It's been great talking this morning and uh, Mary Crooks, you can find her over at the Victoria Women's Trust and uh, lots of good stuff coming out of there. You just need to head to their website to find out what and um, we'll see you again soon. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.